Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 97. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Having control in life is what many of us can become consumed with, but it's when we can let go of things that are beyond our control that we can actually receive more. And our guest this episode, Matt Stover, shares how his career as an NFL kicker completely changed when he let go of those things that he couldn't control. A native of Dallas, Texas, Matt would attend Louisiana Tech University and then would enjoy a 19-year career in the NFL, spending the majority of his career with the Baltimore Ravens while helping the Ravens win Super Bowl 35, where he would also be named first-team All-Pro. During his career, he would score 2,004 points, which ranks him sixth in NFL history while connecting on 83.7% of his field goal attempts. Matt would be named to the Ravens' Ring of Honor in 2011, and now you can find him with the Players Philanthropy Fund, which he co-founded, that enables athletes, entertainers, and other philanthropists to create a dedicated fund that can accept tax-deductible contributions in support of any qualified charitable mission. Here's episode 97 with Matt Stover. Matt, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. From the time I got to meet you in person uh, not too long ago at the Brews and Boards event for the Players Philanthropy Fund up there in Baltimore, I've been following everything what you've been doing in that cornhole tournament up there. Were you surprised how competitive these guys get even in cornhole? I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, it's funny. Uh, when, when you're an athlete, you're competitive in everything you do almost. I mean, it's kind of crazy. But the cornhole is one of those things where they've taken a personal interest in because inside of a lot of the locker rooms in the NFL, including the Ravens, they have a cornhole board. They have them in their locker room, and they and they compete with one another uh, in between meetings and practices. It's so much fun. So they've actually gotten pretty good at it. Uh, and uh, that was kind of the vision behind it. My team and I thought about it, and we said, well, why don't we do something that everybody can do it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a golfer or a basketball player or whatever you are, a runner, uh, or if you're nothing. If you don't do anything, you can still play corn on most of them. So that's why we did it. It's very inclusive. It's fun. It's competitive. Uh, and it's uh, for a great cause. It's that uh, the Players Philanthropy Fund is something that I founded along with my partner, uh, Seth McDonald and uh, Emil Kalina. And uh, it was to create a safe platform for professional athletes and for uh, celebrities to connect to so that they don't have to have their own private foundation and all legal responsibilities. They just plug into the Players Philanthropy Fund and we all do all the back office for them. It's, it's, it's really a cool model called a fiscal sponsorship model. So explain that a little bit more, because I've had John Brinkus and Rob Vaca as guests on the podcast as well, and they've talked about it uh, to a certain degree. But you know, just me from an outsider looking at it, and now that you've been involved in starting this, explain exactly what you mean by this, like a safe place for these athletes or celebrities to go to start something. Well, thanks, Rich. I mean, when you look at it, uh, the vision that I had was that I operated my own private foundation. Um, believe it or not, that is a legal entity that you are personally responsible for because you're signing for all the documents, and therefore there's tax returns, there's bookkeeping, there's checks, there's vetting of the charities and people whom you're trying to sponsor or have a program for. There's receipts. There's all this back office stuff that if you lose track of, you can find yourself trying to do good, finding yourself in hot water. So uh, I saw that there was this platform called a donor advised fund, a DAF in short abbreviation, donor advised fund. It is a charity. It is a foundation that people can gift into uh, and get a tax-deductible donation, but then have control over it where those funds are distributed as long as it's going to another 501c3, to another charitable cause that's been registered. The issue with that is, is that it's very inflexible. So within our donor-advised fund, because that's exactly what the Players Philanthropy Fund is, it's a donor-advised fund. People can put their funds into and then get a tax deduction. 
But we added two more layers to it. We added what we call a fiscal sponsorship agreement. There is a contract between me and an individual. Uh, it's usually a corporation. That corporation that does business as inside of the Players Philanthropy Fund. And they have their own 501c3 status, but in our nonprofit umbrella. So they don't have the legal responsibilities, but they function as if they do have their own foundation so they can go out and do an event to raise money. Those funds are brought in in a, in a compliant way. Then they can run programs, pay for programs with those proceeds. They can gift their own funds and get a tax deduction. They can go raise funds, get grants. And then we can come alongside of them and pay the hard costs in order to have those programs for buses, food, rental, uh, for plane flights, for uh, uh, wounded warriors, whatever it is. We come alongside of them and act as their agents, and so they can then, in return, uh, do all their charitable work. So it's a it's it's a it's a big thing, but it's a small thing because we simplify their world. Yeah, and so it's I mean it's a turnkey operation for these guys that you have it this template. It can be up in less than a week. Yeah, less than a week, Rick. It it can really just come come to it. They can sign up, and we can have them up and running in a nonprofit sense with their own brand. It's white labeled, whatever they choose to be, whether it's Dwayne Wade or Ed Reed or uh, Ray Lewis, uh, they can name it whatever they want. And then they're just doing business ads inside of our own platform. So it's, it's really a, a turnkey type of uh, platform, exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So how did you come up with this though? I mean, I, I think it's such a novel concept, concept, but it seems to make perfect sense. Well, after you understand it, you know, like I explained it, you go, oh, man, that'd be easy. In fact, there's a lot of nonprofits that say, gosh, could I use a physical sponsor? I would, physical sponsor, I'd hate to, you know, I'm getting tired of having to do all the bookkeeping and all the tax returns and all. So they say a lot of them come in, they, they actually roll out of theirs, shut it down, and then they just create this, an account inside of ours and operate as if they've never turned, never changed. Um, so how I came up with it is operating my own private foundation um, I had a lot of help from my financial advisors, from my tax uh, attorney, from those type of people. So it was pretty easy to run, but most people don't have that ability. My wife and I also didn't go out and raise funds. We just gave our own funds through it. Uh, or we would go get a grant from the NFL or somebody and then give the money away. It was pretty easy. But running events and doing hard cost expenses becomes very difficult to do, and you have to make sure you do it right. So... Uh, I decided with my partners to start a donor advice fund to facilitate that piece of it, the back office. But what we discovered was that most athletes don't want to give their own money, believe it or not. Most celebrities <laughs> don't want to give their own money. I think that's um, all so, of Americans. <laughs> yeah, but they do want to use their platform, you know, their, their status in our society to raise funds and better their community with that. So we come alongside of them, whether they have an event planner that's running an event with them, a marketing person, an agent. We come alongside of them, and we make sure that everything they do is compliant, is legal, is paid for in, a, in the proper way. They, they're running according to best practices, uh, which the IRS loves the fact that, you know, what may be legal may not be ethical. Uh, in the nonprofit world, you know, so if you're having a great big party, you raise $100,000, but it costs you $95,000 to have the party and you're only giving $5,000 of it away, that's legal but unethical. It's just not not something you should do. So we come alongside the athlete or the celebrity and, and we make sure that they are at least giving 50% plus. And we hope for upwards of 80% of the proceeds are going towards their cause, whether it's through program or grants. So this is something that I'm very passionate about, as you can hear. Um, we have a great process inside of our walls. We're scaling. We have over 70 clients, I would say, accounts uh, to the legal term. And then from there, uh, we are really facilitating uh, thousands and thousands of dollars weekly going to the causes or programs for these, these uh, different accounts that have, have funds with inside of the Players Philanthropy Fund. And so why did you start your own private foundation? It was a, a way for me to connect uh, with the community. Uh, they needed to see that Matt Stover was more than just about football. Um, I knew I had a social responsibility. I was a role model in our community. Uh, no better way to do that than through charitable works. Uh, Debbie, my, my wife, and I had a very much of a passion for the Christian community here in, in Baltimore and throughout the country. We wanted to support that. Uh, and then through that, I was able to help lots of youth groups, uh, the Catholic charities to, uh, KC Cares, the Living Classroom, and, 
and on and on, uh, the, all our community helping our youth and in our church community. So that was the reason why we, we actually gifted our own funds into the private foundation and get gifted it from there. Um, and then got the tax deduction for it. Uh, so it was, it was a way for me to do it. I also understood, uh, my wife and I were blessed enough with some investments that did very well. And we utilized the donor advice fund in order to transfer some of the assets of those companies prior to the sale. So I didn't have to pay taxes on it and gave away more money because of it. Um, that's a whole nother tax strategy that a lot of people use. So, uh, and you, and you're giving away money. And I, and I really think that is a social responsibility for the wealthy. Um, and I was blessed enough to be considered that to, uh, take their own private funds and to better our communities from it. I'm a firm believer that it's up to the community and not to the government to do that. Um, and I really feel like uh, I, I try to ex- uh, be an example for that for our communities. And with that, if everybody did that through our uh, through our communities, then I believe this 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 country wouldn't have near the problems that it has today. Yeah, and that's probably a whole nother podcast we could talk about because I'm yes, in agreement with you. <laughs> yes, it is. We're getting political with that statement. Yes. I know, but, yes. but it's true. But it is in very mind, true. But, I, but you know, with an with an amoral uh, society and people without good morals, and and, and I believe any morality precedes any great education. Uh, if you don't have that in your community, then it's it's not going to happen until that takes over. So, but that's why I'm leading with me and with my family. Uh, We're going to make sure that we're examples of that. Yes. You're, you're the starting point. And so before all of that could happen in terms of you being this role model and being, or having a platform in your community, there was Matt growing up as a kid in Dallas, Texas, getting into sports. So how did that happen? And what did that look like? Well, you know, growing up, I, I had a, a middle-class uh, upbringing. My father and mother were together. They provided. Um, it was done in a way that uh, they loved me. They provided for me. Um, that it was it was pretty cool uh, when I looked at my opportunities because uh, I was blessed enough to have a good high school, uh, good teachers. Um, I was never, quote, abused. Uh, so my upbringing, I would consider as privileged, uh, but I, I respected it, I honored it, and I worked. I worked very hard. Um, nobody ever told me to go to school. Nobody ever told me to, uh, to study. Nobody ever told me to go work out, to go kick. Um, nobody's telling me to get up in the morning uh, back in the day, and nor are they now. Uh, and I think that's critical. Uh, we all are called to a – we've all been given talents, uh, treasures, time. We've all been given um, – uh, you, you know, gifts, and, and I really believe that uh, it is my responsibility to make sure I'm using those to the best of my ability. So uh, that's what happened when I was a kid. So how did that happen, though? I mean, where did that come from, this motivation that you would get up each morning, you would go practice when you you know, probably didn't want to? Where did that come from? Was that from your upbringing or DNA or a combination? I think it was the being and understanding right and wrong. Um, knowing that um, I am responsible for my own actions and my own choices um, and whatever it is, whether I love or I don't love, whether I uh, am a good citizen or not. And in order to do that, um, and I think we all know right and wrong. Whenever I go speak, I say everybody understands what right and wrong is. Now, looking back, what regrets will you have? Will you have the pain of regret? Well, we all have regrets, but do we have the pain of regret? And so I never wanted to look back and say, golly, why didn't I do that? Or I should have done this. Or, you know, man, I really could have done this. I never wanted to look back and say that. Now, are there points in times when, yeah, I messed up or, you know, I wasn't behaving properly or, I, I you know, we're all falling. You know, we're all, uh, you know, what I consider sinners, right? We're all, we're all flawed. Um, but I, I just, in, in that aspect, I, I never wanted to look back without regret. So, um and then the intrinsic value that God has placed on me, that, that I, I have a God that loves me. Uh, I have a God that wants to be personally intimate with me. Uh, I have a God that uh, gives me uh, everything that I have, including the breath I breathe and the food that I eat. Um, and that he wants me to, he wants to bless me. Uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. 11, uh, he doesn't want to bring me harm. And, and I trust that. It doesn't mean that there won't be hardship, it's, but it's not his fault. It's mankind's fault. And so I, I know that that happens. You know, I've lost my mother, and 
Um, you know, I have teenagers. There's pain there too, right? So, <laughs> yes, I've got teenagers as well. <laughs> you know, so, you know, without preaching too much here, I, I really feel like, um, you know, that uh, only that vacuum uh, hole in my heart was filled with the Lord. And, and because of that, I have a cause that's greater than myself. And do you have any regrets then? What, or what regrets do you have? Some of my behavior when I was a teenager, um, my lack of respect for authority when I was really young, uh, you know, before 18, um, uh, the way I treated uh, young women uh, back in my high school and college days, uh, and uh, I wish I would have known how to love tenderly and uh, with, with, with a Christ-like uh, mindset. I, I just didn't understand that. Life was all about matched over and being selfish and what life could do for me. And, 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 and to me, I was a nice guy. Everybody, you know, I got along with everybody, but I knew what was in my heart. And so what came out at times was not what I am proud of. And when did that change then? Uh, when I was 22, um, I, my wife and I were married within our first year of our marriage. And uh, she was raised in a, in a church. And, and she had a great understanding and a relationship with God that, uh, uh, you know, she, she was surrendered to Jesus as her Lord and Savior when she was 12. And I went to church and I had a a good understanding of who God was, but it was more in a, a religious way and an honoring way. But on Sundays, I'd go to church, but on, you know, Monday through Saturday, I would, you know, shut the door on him and do whatever I wanted to do. And then I'd get covered on Sunday again, right? So uh, there's no relationship there. It was strictly just a, um, you know, a, a religion. Uh, so in 20, when I was 22, I went through some hard times uh, on the field as a uh, professional athlete. Um, and I just got myself in a bunch of hot water with my career, wasn't kicking well, Belichick was my coach, man, the pressure was on, and I just got broken down uh, after the 91 season, and I just, God was just tenderizing my heart to say, look, dude, uh, you're going to let me in here? You're going to let me in, or are you just going to keep fighting me? Because right now, the way you're doing it on your own, you're going to be out of this league in no time, and he knew where my passion was. Um, and I really wanted to be, you know, a professional football player. I always thought, why not me? Uh, and kicking was the way I could go. And so at that point, um, I heard the gospel for the first time. For what good, would, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, but yet forfeit his own soul? Uh, but the one who loses it for my sake will gain it and have everlasting life. When I, felt like, when I heard that for the first time, I went, oh, my gosh, I have the whole world, but I'm miserable. I'm absolutely miserable. I'm empty. This is not what I thought it would be. And I think that's why you see a lot of celebrities and athletes not doing well um, with their identity. Um, so once I understood that piece and I surrendered, you know, Christ coming into my life, I'm a sinner. I need you. Um, then the purpose and understanding I had wasn't about me. It was about him and about how he could use me to help others and to be a light amongst all the darkness. And then, but there's one thing that happened to me is that in 1992, the following year, I hadn't let go of football. Football was still mine. I kind of, kind of look at it like this. My life was his with an open hand facing up, but football, I had still had my fist around it, you know, closed fist. And because it was mine, I worked hard. Hey, you know, God, this is what's, you know, I've done this, you know, I'm going to take care of it. Well, that year I herniated a disc in my back and had to kick with it. I don't know if you've ever had back pain. Um, yeah, it's no fun kicking with it's no fun. And, you know, anywhere from Tiger Woods, anybody that's ever had bad back pain, it just affects you greatly. Well, God was basically trying to pry my fingers off of my career. Um, and he did one by one through, uh, 13 games of pain. Um, and finally by, you know, 10th game in, I finally just said, God, this is yours. I, I don't care what happens to football. It's yours. Take it. You know, I'm done. I can't do this. And boom. Uh, got through the season. He put me in front of some people that helped me physically. You know, I do think that God can use people to help, you know, his cause, his purpose. So I, I got strong that off season. The pain went away and my career took off in 1993. Absolutely took off. So being a Christian doesn't mean you're weak at all just because you surrender. It means that you have power because you alone can't do it. I'm telling you, you can think that you do it, but then at the end of your life that you have, you know, 10, 20 billion dollars. Well, okay. So what, you know, <laughs> you know, it really, but, but if you've changed people's lives and you've really made this world a better place, but not only just on this earth, but eternally, because that's what really matters. 
is eternity because, you know, life as we know it is just a puff of smoke according to time itself. Um, you know, I really felt like that cause was there. And, you know, once I surrendered everything, it doesn't mean that I don't have my challenges and my pride, uh, but I try every day to stay accountable and stay submitted to uh, the cause and purpose he's called me to. That's right. Well, I'm 47 years old, and Matt, I fought him for 37 years of my life. <laughs> and uh, it's amazing yeah. the difference after I did surrender, you know, myself to God as well and develop that relationship. But now, like from a back pain perspective, I, I'm, I understand that. But you're out there kicking and you have a herniated disc, but I, I have back pain just because I'm unloading the dishwasher the wrong way. <laughs> so it's a completely <laughs> different <laughs> situation. Yeah. And yeah. so when you talk about how all of a sudden your game, your kicking game changed and it just took off, what does that mean and what did that look like then? Well, did it mean that I didn't have to work? Did it mean I didn't miss field goals? Did it mean that, you know, I didn't have to, you know, grind it. No, of course. That's the labor we've been, you know, cursed with. I mean, we've, we've got to get out there. Um, but it became less stressful, I would say, even though it's stressful. It became where, you know what, what am I scared of? Where's my fear? My fear is getting cut. My fear is not being able to, you know, take care of my family. My fear is, is uh, things that I couldn't control. And so all I did was I said, you know what, God, I'm, I'm not worried about it. I know you got me. Uh, if I go out there and miss every field goal today, you've got a purpose for it. And I've done that. I went, missed three field goals in one game, lost the game. And there was a purpose for it in 2005, first game of the season, Sunday night football, 0 for 3, got beat by the Indianapolis Colts. Everybody in the league was watching. And here I am, dude, you know. Uh, and I said, all right, God, uh, what was that about? I trust you. I, 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 I wish that didn't happen. This hurts. I'm embarrassed. Uh, I lost the game for my team. I took responsibility for it. But it wasn't five minutes before I walked off that field that I had two people, Rex Ryan and Ray Lewis, both up, come up to me right, right when we were done. And they looked at me and they said, Stover, you got those out of the way. Now let's move on because I know it's not going to continue. And then here's Rex Ryan. Well, Stove, you got those out of the way. Let's go. <laughs> and that meant more than me, more to me than anything. Because what they were saying is, Matt, we trust you. You had a bad day. Everybody has bad days, right? But we trust that you're going to come out of this and you're going to come out shining. And I had so many people looking at me because I call myself this Christian guy, right? And I run the Bible study. And, and here I am having, they had never seen a bad day like that for me ever. And all of a sudden, here I am, and they go, all right, so now what are you going to do? Well, they saw me go to work, and they saw me fight, and they saw me struggle, and I missed one field goal for the rest of the season. That's all that happened. Wow. field goal for 15 games. Now, I could not have done that on my own because I would have been freaking out, right? But because I knew God had a purpose for it, and I had surrendered it, and I knew that my career was in his hands. It wasn't in mine, even though I have to put in the work. He's the one who guides my steps. He's the one who puts my steps in the way, and he gives me those opportunities. It was not about me. It was about him. And when I did that, I'm telling you, the career loosened up. I was able to go out there and not freak out on my next field goal. I made it, and then I made the next one, and then I made the next one. And the only one I missed was a 58-yarder. And it was a tough kick to kick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can imagine 58 just in itself. Now, was that? Yeah, I, I didn't have that long of a leg when I was that old. But, uh, you know, I tried one anyways with a win, and it just didn't go well. But uh, So, you know, that, that's what I mean about uh, the, the surrender. And, and I know, I know as, a, as, a, as a man of faith, it hasn't always been that way for me. And when I, when I was not walking with him, it, it was... It was what I thought great, and then hardship came. It's not if it comes, it's when it comes. And if you don't have a foundation to stand on, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know have a community around you that loves you no matter what, um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. What about the times when you had failures as a kicker, missing kicks, before you had this relationship with God? How did you deal with those situations at that point in your career? I justified them. Yeah, I was a bad field. 
that was a bad hold. You know, it was, you know, conditions were bad. It was windy. You know, it was not my fault. You know, that type of, that type of thing. Um, also standard for kicking back in the eighties and early nineties was 73%. So, you know, you're going to miss some. So you kind of say, well, I'm going to miss some, just like a baseball batter goes up to the plate. You know, he tries to be a thousand percent, but typically he's 300 if he's good. Um, so there's a lot of failure. So dealing with failure was just a part of my DNA. I think that's incredibly important. If you want to know how to be successful, you better know how to deal with failure. Number one. Um, so I, I say that, uh, you know, and you, you look at the, every shot that's not taken, uh, never hits the bullseye, you know, and, and, and I always say to myself, uh, I'm learning from those, those situations. I learned what not to do, what to do. Uh, and it's funny how you always hear, you know, I learned more from my failures than I ever did from my successes. Well, that's because the emotional burn into your brain and your memory tank is, is there even more prevalent because your emotions were so much more affected when that happens. During your whole career, what has motivated you, though? What has been the drive behind your success? Before I was before I was saved, or you know, walking with the Lord, it was why not me, right? Why not me? What makes that guy any better than me? I mean, I, God give me talent. It looks like I can kick a ball. Why not me? And believe it or not, that carried me. That carried me a lot. Why not me? Why? What make, why can't God use why, why, you know, after I became Christian and uh, yeah. So it, it just became something that I owned, something that uh, I made sure that it wasn't my identity. It was something that I did. Um, my identity was in Christ. And I think we all have to be careful because at some point in time, if you're a professional athlete, your career will be over. You know, it, it's not going to last until you're 75. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I mean, you will be done at a young age. So my identity was uh, at, at before walking with the Lord was all about, you know, my kicking career. Um, but after it was all in him, therefore, if I didn't have it, I had foundation to stand on. And I think there's where a lot of confusion happens. With a lot of, a lot of the players. I also felt like the NFL was a quick start in life. It wasn't a means to an end financially. Um, I think we have to realize that um, it's like hitting the lottery. Um, you get a lot of money at one point, but then you have a whole lot more life to live, um, and you better budget it right. Of course. And were there times, though, where, I mean, I know you're, this is a job, you have a job, that's your career in the NFL, and it's playing a game, and you, you can define it however you want to in, in terms of a game, but were there times where you go into the stadium and you just felt, man, I just don't have it, I don't feel like going to work today? I felt like I was a mental midget is what I call it. Just mental mess. I was just a, uh, you know, maybe it was the kids or, you know, the family or the, just, I was just not good or I was injured. You know, I was hurt. I should say, I, I, I never missed a game, but you know, maybe I was hurt. And there was a lot of, um, uh, doubt, self doubt, personal doubt. And I think that we all deal with doubt. Um, and, and how I, that, that doubt creeps in. And there are times, you know, that you're thinking right before a game winner. And anybody that ever tells you this is lying, uh, that they say, Oh, I never think, you know, I never get nervous. Shut up. <laughs> you know, cause I know that I'm no different than that guy. And I know that there are thoughts that come to your mind. And it is a, it is an emotional and mental battle to keep yourself in the right frame of mind. So when you hear about the zone, the players in the zone, What's going on there is you are channeled properly emotionally and mentally to overcome any of the anxieties, and that's what I look at. I, I, every play that you play in as a player, you are anxious. Uh, but when nervousness creeps in, that's when you have doubt. So anxious anxiety, your heart rate's going, your breath's up, your blood pressure's up, that's anxiety. But nervousness is when it's like, I don't want the ball. I, I, I don't want to kick. Uh, no, I, I, you know, and there have been times when I didn't want to kick the ball. Very, very, very few, less than a handful, but I didn't want the ball. It was just something was going on, and I, you know, but that's one of the critical pieces of who you are as an athlete. If you want to be great, you better want the ball. And that was what I wanted. As a kicker, the only way I could ever have gotten on an NFL field, the only way was to be a place kicker or a punter. Um, I didn't have the physical skills to be a quarterback, a wide receiver, even though I was a wide receiver in high school, you know, a, a defensive back. That wasn't, I, I didn't have the body type and have the skills. 
but I wanted the ball and I found my little niche by doing that, by kicking a football. So I think that's a critical piece is overcoming that doubt, overcoming that fear is do you have the DNA to want the ball? If you want it, then you can get it. And I, and I think that goes for anything that you do. And so do you remember specifically those times that you didn't want to make that kick? Um, yeah, I mean, a game or two. There, there was a, um, I guess there was a playoff game when it was just blowing like crazy um, in Cleveland. And I was actually in Pittsburgh. And it was so, and this was early, early in my career, I had an okay season. And I was just not, you know, kicking great. And uh, the field was bad. It was blowing. And I'm sitting there going, man, I hope I don't get the kick. And if you ever think that, right, most likely you're going to get the kick. Yes. And you're going to miss. <laughs> so every game uh, that I played in, and this is not, I would say, I struggled at times maintaining it, but I always entered the game thinking that I was going to get the game-winning field goal. You never enter the game thinking that you were not. Uh, because if you do prepare for it, then you're ready. If you don't prepare for it, you get it, then you're not going to make it. it. It's just the way it happens. So every game you envision that. Yes. And what about what is going through your mind as you're trying to make sure not to have that nervousness when you're about to make a potential game-winning kick, you're on the road, the stadium is going crazy, loud as anything, what exactly is happening? I mean, do you have tunnel vision where you can't hear people, or what is that like? Well, it does take practice, and any sports psychologist will tell you you need to practice your visualization. Um, your routine becomes extremely important. Um, any golfer, any baseball player, anybody that does a specialized sport or a position in a specialized sport, um, you have to be very well trained uh, so that when it does come time for those pressure situation, your routine takes over and your muscle memory takes over and you're not thinking. Uh, so what I mean by not thinking is that you're out there thinking of one thing. And a lot of times I would say one of these two things, number one, watch the ball, right? If you're a baseball player. If you're a kicker, if you're a tennis player, if you're a golfer, number one, watch the ball, right? I mean, cause if you're not watching the ball, you have no way, uh, no way of hitting it. Right? <laughs> That's so, right. I mean, you're screwed. <laughs> uh, number two, go slow. Um, so during the time that I'm out there getting ready to kick a field goal, I'm visualizing the field goal before I ever kick it. Conditions have already been uh, processed. The field conditions have been processed. Um, I've already gone through the snap hold to kick in my mind, you know, three or four times, a dozen times, whatever, how long it ever takes me to, to get to that play. Uh, but, and, and thirdly, what I make sure is, is that uh, when, when you go slow, it's because in high-pressure situations, you find yourself um, overreacting and, and being too fast. Uh, you're really tight. Uh, I equate it to when you're in your car, uh, you're on ice, you hit the brakes, you start sliding, and the car that's in front of you, you're sliding at and your heart rate, your everything's tightening up, and you can't breathe, right? That's what being over-anxious, and if you don't learn how to breathe and tell yourself to go slow, then, then if you have to react at the end of that situation, you're going to really blow up on the ball, uh, and you won't, ha you won't hit it. So everything changes. So um, in my mind, that's really what I was going through is telling myself to watch the ball go slow and visualizing that kick and seeing it good before I ever kick it. So basically, the kick's already good before I ever go out there. And what was more enjoyable than kicking a game winner on the road to silence the crowd or at home and have the euphoria go with the home crowd? You know what's funny about that? People say that, you know, playing at home, I, when I was away, playing at another person's stadium and I'm kicking the game winner. It was so loud. You couldn't hear anything. It was just loud. Right. And I, I have that ability just to, Oh, well, it's loud, but all right. So what, you know, everybody's doing it. it. That didn't ever intimidate me. What intimidated me was when I was at home and somebody from the other team was somebody I knew, maybe they were on my team and they're yelling because it's, it's quiet at home, nobody's hollering at me, and I can hear the other team going, Stover, 
he's just over. <laughs> Miss it. You know, or they're saying something about me, you know? Yes. That's when it's intimidating because people say, oh, you can't hear him. Yes, you can. <laughs> the guy in a batter's box, he can hear you. I, well, just as he had the ability to tune you out, right? So, uh, you know, and I always laugh. I don't, know, I don't hear anything. Yeah, yeah you do. <laughs> it's just can't, can you not really take it in and, and, and comprehend it? That, that's the issue. Was there a particular guy that would talk trash more than anybody else that you had to play against? Well, there were some old teammates that did. And I have to tell you, during the course of practice, in order for me to get uh, geeked up and uh, not just go through the motions of practice, um, I would always tell my defense to see if they can get me to miss. You know, And I didn't care what that took. You know, uh, Tony Saragusa getting right in front of me and pulling his pants down. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> That's not an image I think anybody wants to visualize no, right now, Matt. It's not. And everybody was dying laughing, including my holder, and I hit the field goal. And he looked at me like, wow, you are good. <laughs> you know, so, or, or you have somebody just heckling you during practice. And the reason for that was is because I needed to keep my mental focus during practice. I never, took, I never thought practice was just practice. I, I wanted to make sure that I prepared myself fully so that when I stepped out on the field on Sunday or Monday night or whenever it was, that I was ready. There was no doubt that I did everything I could to get ready. So, and that's really a great way to overcome that fear and anxiety is knowing stepping on the field, you own it. No matter what happens here, good or bad, I've done everything I could. There's no regret in that. You know, it just, you just had a bad play um, if you missed it. So that, that's, that's how I conducted it. So. Um, you know, preparing myself mentally was, was always a struggle. If you ask me what I don't miss about the NFL, that is gearing myself up every single game and going through the whole process to get ready for the game winner. Yeah, so w- was that a grind? That, for me, it was. Certain guys, it's not. But I would say that even then, it, it, it's a grind. Uh, all you have to do is miss a couple, couple of them. And I've done. I, you know, I miss a few. And it just wears on you, you know, because you know exactly what that feels like, and it's not fun. Um, even though there's a greater you know, purpose for it, it still hurts because you let your team down. Another aspect of your career is also that not only are you kicking field goals, but you're also kicking off. And there's always this mantra that everybody talks about that, oh, you can never, as a kick returner, you can never get tackled by the kicker. <laughs> that's, the oh, one, yeah. that's the one cardinal sin. So did you take pride on making sure that you – had opportunity to make a tackle if a guy did break it open like that? Absolutely. Uh, and I made quite a few tackles. I was a football player growing all the way up, meaning I was a running back, defensive back, a wide receiver. So I knew the game. I knew angles. I knew how to you know hit somebody. Mind you, I had Toys R Us pads on, so I really didn't want to <laughs> you know, hit too much, anybody very hard. I didn't even have a mouthpiece in, much less a shoulder pads. They were called the Wilson Aggressor 2s that I had since 1990. I mean, you know, so... Oh, it was bad. The helmet barely had a chin strap on it. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, I, I knew that I was part of the game, part of the play. Um, my number one job was to make sure that they didn't score. So my philosophy was get down uh, the play, you know, get down, uh, down the field enough to where they can't um, uh, score. And so slow down the returner, find themselves in a position where you're either making the tackle or you're slowing them down so that your other teammates can do it. So, for instance, if an offensive lineman was leading uh, the returner and I had to go through the offensive lineman in order to get to the returner, there's no way that was going to happen, right? I'm 180 pounds, he's 300, running full steam. What am I going to do with that, right? So my job was to at least slow down the returner. So the way I did that was by getting a penalty and getting fined but I took the offensive lineman out by chop blocking, taking his <laughs> legs completely out, right? And, and it slowed down a returner just enough to where our, our safeties could get to him and, 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 and uh, make the tackle. Let me tell you, I, I, I came over the sideline after I did that two times, uh, and the coaches looked at me like, what a football play, Stover. That was outstanding. That was great work because they knew I couldn't have done anything. You know, I could have just tried to hit the offensive lineman high and just let him toss me, right? And then I would, he wouldn't have even break, broken stride on me. Instead, you know, I actually took him out, you know. So <laughs> that's, that's how you do it. You that's take right. out the giant in front of 
in front of the army, and then you, then you can kill the rest of the army. <laughs> <laughs> but how sore were you after that? Were you sore for days? That was all right. Nah, it's all right. Depends on how hard I got hit, but yeah. yeah, there was always that case where if you get hit. Now, Randall L. one time talked junk to me right before the game when he was with the Steelers, and we were at home, and he was talking a bunch of junk, and he was going to take one back on me, and I'm sitting there going, okay, whatever. I tackled him twice in that game. <laughs> and he looked at me like, you know, he was cussing at me, calling me, you know, kicker and, you know, that kind of stuff. I just loved it. It was so funny. That's a moment of pride for sure right there. Yeah. I got up and talked a little smack on the second one saying, I told you you weren't going to score. <laughs> now, what about you talking smack? Did you ever talk smack like after kicking a field goal and having the opportunity to say something to the opposing team? Well, typically what I would do, um, starting in 1993, really, four, I understood that, you know, this career wasn't about myself. I, I knew uh, that calling was greater than me. It wasn't about me. So I, 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 if, I, if I made a field goal, I would point up, and that, that's pretty easy to do. But then what I knew would be even a greater testimony is if I pointed up after I missed. And uh, to me, that spoke more volume than anything that I could have done because yeah, God gets to go there too. He's, he's this, this, there's a reason for this. I mean, yeah. Does he really care about a made or missed field goal? I believe he does. Right. I think he gives us free will. I think he, you know, we go out there and perform. Uh, but I, I do think that, yeah, he cares and he, you can glorify him with it. So one of the greatest moments, but hardest moments in my life is my last game I ever played. My last field goal I ever kicked was a missed field goal in Super Bowl 44 when I was with the Indianapolis Colts, and I missed a 51-yard field goal. And Jim Nance and Bill Sims were the commentators for that game. And I had missed the field goal, and I pointed up. And Jim Nance said, you know, moments later, you know, Matt's not saying that he thought he made that field goal. Matt's a godly man. And uh, he's pointing up because, you know, he's giving thanks. And that's in front of 120 million people, you know, watching this game. And if you want to know how I ended my career and why I ended it, and after that season was because it was never about me. It was all about him. And I had to understand that I had no idea that Jim Nance said that. I'm on the field, right? I'm on the bench after I miss it, upset that I missed the field goal, perfect opportunity for greatness, you know, not for my own sake, but for my team, helping us win. Drew Brees takes the ball after that missed field goal and scores. The next play, we get the ball. The next series, Peyton Manning throws a pick six. Game over. I remember. Right? And they had just gotten an onside kick before all that. So they, had a, they, they scored three times. Boom, boom, boom. Game was over. And I'm over there distraught and broken and thinking, oh, man, what a way. Come on. You know, Lord, you know, this isn't what I envisioned. You know, this is my, probably my last game I ever got to play. And I'm walking off the field and, you know, pretty much reading, you know, just, just beat up a little bit. And I get my phone. And I open it up, and I have 53 messages from all of my pals and my people. Stover, you wouldn't believe. Jim Nance said, blah, 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 blah. And I went, oh. I, and then I began to weep. It was, oh, gosh. It was never about me. And here I was, all caught up in my own world and my own pain and the embarrassment of missing a 51-yard field goal and caught, helping us lose the game. You know, and it was never about me. It was always about him and how I pointed up after I missed that field goal. And did that give you the peace to be able to walk away when you did? That gave me closure. That gave me, ah, okay, God, you wanted me to be on this team, leaving the Ravens when I did in 2008, just helped them get to the AC championship, kick a game winner against the Titans. They didn't sign me back. I go to the Colts week five. Adam Benatari doesn't even come back because I'm kicking so well. And then I get to the Super Bowl to glorify you. And to be able to say that is what it was all about. So I could walk away and say, game over. And there was no regrets. Was that a regretful play? Well, sure. I mean, in the context of, of your team, 
and losing the game, sure, but not in a context of really what my true purpose was. And that's when I could walk away. It's obviously bigger than just being out there kicking. That's for sure. It really is. Now, you were able to win a Super Bowl with the Ravens in Super Bowl 35. What was that experience like, actually getting to hoist that trophy up and put on a Super Bowl ring? You know, that was a culmination of 10 years of pain (laughs) and struggle and struggle moving from uh, Cleveland to Baltimore. Yes, and that's uh, a whole other topic, too, that you were part of the Cleveland Browns team that Art Modell moves basically in the middle of the night. Yeah, and it was just so hard. It was just, you know, everything. I had two little babies and just moving, you know, transition, blah, blah, blah. Don't feel sorry for me, right? But it's just... I I just, at that point, it was like, and then the fact that this team had a, an okay offense, middle of the pack offense, the number one defense, I still think of all times, special teams that man, managed field position. And here I was called at that time, not knowing it, that I was going to win games just because we kicked field goals. In fact, our defense on third down many a times told the offense, just kick the field goal. Don't even worry about it. So, you know, don't turn the ball over. Whatever you do, just get the three. We got it. You know, you're in Super Bowl 35, and your defense says right before the game starts, the defense says to the offense, offense, all we need is 10. That's all we need. Just get 10, and we'll win. I'm sitting there going, well, uh, 7 plus 3 is 10, and I'm part of that 10. You've got to perform. Yeah, I'm I'm part of that. Is that going to be a game winner? Holy crud. (laughs) You know? So, of course, I embraced it, and uh, right before halftime, I kicked a 47-yarder with a minute 50 left to go up by 10. And, uh, you know, we beat them 34-7. to The seven they got was a return kickoff, one of the three I ever had. I only had three return kickoffs on me, so um, out of about 1,700. Wow, 1,700. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, had a ton. Had a lot, yeah. So, you know, looking back, uh, that that was – you know, kicking in the Super Bowls um, on that stage uh, was an absolute privilege. Um, the game, uh, believe it or not, for the player is is hard, uh, emotionally draining. Uh, it's it's you know it's not just a game for us. It is a job. It is a. What do you mean by that? In terms of just emotionally draining. Well, people think, oh, you just play football. How much fun would that be? You don't realize that you know this is. It's pressure field. Yes, we're getting paid for it, and everything. But you don't want to be the guy to let your team down. You know, you you want to do everything you can to help us win. And you, you this opportunity before you is 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 great. It really is. And the amount of work and everything that has to go well for you to get to that game is incredible. So when somebody like the Buffalo Bills gets there four times and loses all four, I'm still saying to you. Oh my gosh, do you realize how hard it is to get to the Super Bowl? And they got the four of them in a row? That, that's unbelievable. Oh, it's insane. That, that's, yes. That, that's, you, that didn't happen. You know, at the end of the, at the, end of the thing, I, you know, I, I'm content, you know, with, with losing. But I'm also, um, you know, it, it hurt. But to win was, was that, hey, you know, the Joe Namath, we did it. You know, that, that is how you feel. Uh, we did it. Oh, my gosh. We actually won. <laughs> yeah. Did it take a few days before it to sink in that you'd actually won a Super Bowl? No, no, no. It, it's right then. Okay. You're on that field, and, <laughs> and, 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 and you see Ovechkin after he wins the championship this past year, and you see joy, right? That's sincere. That is as <laughs> sincere as it gets, man. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, as we're wrapping up here, Matt, uh, one of the things that uh, I also focus on is words of wisdom. And you've shared a lot because uh, you obviously with your faith and just your journey. But are there any particular phrases, quotes or mottos or other uh, Bible verses that have meant a lot to you in your life that you would like to share? Um, you know, when I, I think about that, God loves me no matter what. Um, uh, I think that God's grace is sufficient, um, and, and I mean that in a way that no matter what you've done, no matter what you think you are or who you think you are, God loves you so much, and His grace is sufficient to forgive all of it. 
um, that gives me freedom. Um, it gives me freedom to fail. It gives me freedom to love. It gives me freedom to forgive. Um, I think that's empowering. Uh, so many of us hold on to our past. Uh, we all think that, you know, we're not, we could never, you know, God could never love me, um, or nobody ever loves me. Um, I, I think that is a critical piece. Um, and who you are because it's who, it's who loves you, um, and who loved you first, uh, that really matters to me. And so from there, I try to do the same for those who I love and who love me. Um, I try to exemplify that same type of love in return, uh, by far not perfect with it, but, uh, that's what I try to model by. So I think from everything from that is the foundation uh, and then how I conduct myself out in my community with a player's philanthropy fund, my purpose behind that when I speak or uh, when I mentor, uh, that's what it's about. Well said, sir. Matt, I can't thank you enough for joining me here on the podcast. I greatly appreciate your time and definitely looking forward to seeing what the future holds for the player's philanthropy fund and all the great things you're going to be continuing to do. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to, to share. Mental focus is the ability to push out negative thoughts in any type of nervousness that we might feel in any situation, and that doesn't matter if you're a star athlete or simply providing for your family. And many times it takes having the ability to practice replacing those negative thoughts with positive ones as Matt was able to do throughout his career, but that truly doesn't happen until you can feel the freedom that comes from being loved and understanding that you are loved by God no matter what. Now that finishes episode 97. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.